I, uh, I came away from last week having more people come up and ask me questions and, have com and having conversations between yourselves about uh, the ideas that we were talking about during the message than I probably have engaged with most people for a lot of the, uh, the rest of the time that Ashley and I have been here. And I, I want to encourage us all in that that uh, what we do here on a Sunday morning, particularly what I'm doing right now, standing up in front of you and talking, um, I don't want it to be the, the, a, a one-way conversation. And I don't think that biblically, the sermon portion of any gathering was ever meant to be a one-way conversation. I think that it's actually meant to be the beginning of a conversation that happens uh, within the context of our church, within the context of our community. So to, to be asking questions, to be having conversations, to be mulling ideas over, to be trying to get work them, these biblical concepts and ideas into our brains and down into our hearts is what we're supposed to be doing. See, very often in our culture, we have an entertainment culture, right? So well, the people who are sitting and listening are just the passive recipients of information. And the person who is, the, and then just for your entertainment, right? That's how, kind of how we think about it. But in the church, the spoken word and the worship and, and the scripture that's read publicly is not meant to be just something that's um, received and consumed for your entertainment. It's meant to be something that we, as a community of people, uh, wrestle with. We live in. We 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 actually uh, attempt to live out to the best of our ability. And so that is, for me at least, a fundamental belief about what, what is happening here on a Sunday morning. So uh, that does not mean that I want you all to come and challenge me on every point that I make, because that would take a, that would be long, that would be a long process, and I, can't, I couldn't answer all of your questions. But it does mean that um, in order for, these, for the word that God is speaking to us, hopefully not just the words that I'm speaking, but the word that God is speaking to us as a community and speaking to you as an individual is something that has to be, has to be dealt with, has to be contended with and for. Does that make sense? There's this concept in the Bible of contention, of, of wrestling even, that I think we, we need to do as a group of people. And for this reason, uh, we are beginning home groups in a couple of weeks. And home groups are really an opportunity, mostly, uh, mostly an opportunity for us to just get together and spend time together, but also an, uh, an added opportunity for us to, to sit with the scriptures, to sit with uh, the word that was spoken on a Sunday, and to actually wrestle with it, to actually ask questions, to actually attempt to the best of our ability to get our, our hearts and our minds around what maybe God is saying to not just you as an individual, but to us as a body. Does that make sense? I really believe, and it's part of the reason I like speaking from the floor instead of from the stage, is that in some sense, the, the word of God springs up from within us, right? It doesn't come from on high down to us. The, the spirit of God dwelling in, in and amongst us, right? If the, the, the scriptures say wherever two or three are gathered, Christ is there in the middle of them in some unique and special way. That the, that the word of God comes from within us, right? And springs out from our community into the, the larger community that is Cedar Falls. Does that make sense? I hope it does in some sense. The shorthand, the encouragement is just, just to wrestle, to think, to, to process, uh, to talk about what we talk about here on a Sunday morning. And that's really what we want home groups to be, an opportunity to just to build community, to build relationship, and to wrestle, to talk, to, to deal with in, on, on, a, on a hopefully uh, significant way, in a hopefully significant way, what's being discussed on a Sunday morning. So, 
Is that a good enough plug for home groups? If you're interested in that, like, like Ashley said, uh, please go sign up. We haven't uh, worked out all the details yet, but in the coming weeks we will. And uh, we're really looking forward to that. Speaking of, my wife has done an, inc an incredible, incredible job with our graphics lately. I liked all of those. They were really cool. So I'm going to praise you publicly. There you go. All right. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the passage in First Peter that uh, Nick so eloquently read for us. Um, Today's section of scripture was a little, you notice, was a little bit shorter than the sections of scripture that I'd covered previous, because I really want to hone in on one idea this morning, just that section that, that Peter is addressing to the church, to really hone in. So very quickly, what we're going to do is we're going to move, uh, move through the kind of historical context of what that passage meant to the original audience. We're going to talk about briefly what he was attempting to get to um, to his audience, and then we're going to move through to how that applies to us, and then we'll move into communion. So hopefully we can be both uh, succinct and specific and clear this morning, which occasionally we struggle with, and by we I mean me. So, all right. So uh, last week what we were looking at was uh, Peter's challenge to the church about how to act in the midst of a, a culture that is hostile towards them. So he was giving them instructions on how to, how to do things like submit to authority that they did, with whom they didn't see eye to eye. He instructed the church to, li to live good lives uh, that bless those around them uh, rather than doing ill to people who want to do ill to them. And he taught them that suffering is actually a way that leads us to look more like Jesus. Okay, those are kind of the three ideas that Peter was talking about in the passage last week. But this week... Um, like I said, I really want to focus on what he says to the church about how the church ought to answer people's questions. So he's beginning this, this section where he's talking about how the church is to answer questions that arise about who they are and what they believe and why they live the way they do. Okay? This is what Peter's addressing to the church. So just I'm going to draw out really fast just two quick um, points that he draws out, and then we'll move on to the... Um, the stuff that hits home a little more, all right? All right, so the first thing I just want to draw out is out of uh, 1 Peter 3.15. So uh, you can look either on your notes, because it's all there, uh, or in your Bibles. And uh, I, I just summarized this. He says, essentially, exiles and strangers should live lives that look different, all right? That's just a point. So um, Peter does not simply want the churches uh, to, that he's speaking to in this passage to quietly endure uh, he also expects them to live lives in public in such a way that their lives elicit questions from the people around them. Does this make sense? So he's looking for the church that he, the churches to whom he is speaking, that to be and to live in such a way as that the people who come into contact with them, the people with whom they bump into, to have questions about what Peter calls the hope that resides within them or, or the hope that they have in Jesus. He expects that the way in which they're living will elicit questions from the culture in which they find themselves. Does this make sense? Because the way in which they were living was slightly peculiar. Try to say peculiar like five times fast. It doesn't work. I can, I can barely do it. It takes every ounce of my being just to say peculiar up here. Anyways, um, that should be funny, but the, whatever. No, no big deal, guys. Um, 
So, so he believes in some really r- true and specific way that their lives should elicit questions, right? Should, should, uh, should bring up questions from the surrounding culture. And this is what he says in verse uh, 15 and 16. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, uh, your good behavior in Christ may be, uh, uh, they may be ashamed of their slander because of your good behavior in Christ. So the word that I really want to focus in on here is the word in verse 15 where he says, give a reason for the hope that, you fi- that is in you, okay? This word reason in the New Testament is the word um, apologia. Apologia is the Greek word there. And this is where we get our English word apology, but there's, it, there's not a whole lot of resonance between those two words in the, in the Greek and in the English. Um, the word apologia in Greek really means to, to give a reason defense, to give a reason defense. And it comes from the, the rhetorical or even the legal system in the first century world. So uh, an apologia was something that was given in defense in, in the court of law. Does this make sense? So if, I, if, I, if charges were brought against me, I would give an apologia as a means to my defense. Does this make sense? Now, Peter is not necessarily using this term in that way. So he's not, he's not, he doesn't envision the Christian being questioned in, in, in court, all right? So it's important that we don't extrapolate that too far. But this word does mean to give a reason defense, to have a, a logical, right? To have, to have a pre, and even he, he kind of talks about a pre-prepared defense. To be thinking about what you will say when someone asks you, all right? This is what, he, this is what he's asking of the church. So, uh, so Peter's asking these Christians in the face of opposition, right? Because they live in a culture that is, that is opposed to them in some sense. Uh, at this time, we've said before, but at this time, the culture in which, to which he is writing to these Christians, the culture was beginning to turn. The dial of persecution was beginning to get turned up. Nero was the emperor of Rome at this time, and he was beginning to allow different prefects and different uh, governors to do whatever they wanted with Christians. So some of them might be persecuting them, and some of them, some of them might be letting them live peaceable lives. But you, you can see the dial of persecution that was happening in the ancient world was beginning to get ratcheted up. And yet, to, in, in this culture where most certainly Christians, and he says it later in verse 17 right there, right, that Christians were being slandered publicly. They were being spoken of ill in, in the culture. What he says is they ought to be prepared to give a reason for why they live the way they do, right? So he doesn't want these Christians to cower in a corner. He wants them to engage respectfully and with love and with grace in culture. Does this make sense? He doesn't want them to simply run away. He wants them to engage. He wants to engage the questions that come their way with respect and with love, right? It's kind of clear. Uh, now notice the point of this defense is not to win. Peter never says, give a defense of the hope that you have within you so that you can win and so that you can shame everybody, right? By virtue of winning. No, he doesn't say that. He says, actually, the thing that will be the, to the shame of the person who slander you will be your good deeds, right? It will be because they bring, uh, they bring slander against you and you bring blessing back at them, and that's that. That's, uh, in some sense, is a, um, what was I going to say? That is, a, <laughs> that is, in some sense, um, your own defense, right? 
that that person is shamed by virtue of the fact that when they hit you, right, you turn the other cheek. You offered them the other one in a, in a biblical sense, right? When they slandered you, what you came back at them with was love, right? And that, in some sense, shames that person who is slandering you or speaking ill of you, right? This is, this is the way that uh, retaliation, in a, in a biblical sense, needs to happen in the Bible. Not, not, uh, not evil for evil, but evil for good, right? We, return, we looked at it last week. We return evil with blessing. And this is, again, what Peter is asking this church to do. So, um, so he is expecting these Christians to have actual intellectual arguments, right? Actual intellect, and not arguments in the argumentative sense, but in the sense of having reasons. He's actually asking them to have an apologia for why they believe what they believe and why they live the way they live. He wants them to think about the reasons that they do the things they do, right? That makes sense. So that's one. Number two uh, is found in uh, 1 Peter 3.17. And here, I'm just summarizing it. He says, their, he wants their peculiar lives to elicit questions, um, but, they were, but they are not going to escape suffering, is basically what he says. So notice what he says here uh, in verse 16 and 17. Uh, he, he says, again, that he does not expect them to win in any specific way. Uh, he still expects that they will endure slander and that they will suffer in some sense. So he doesn't expect that, the, that the, uh, the apologia, that the reason defense that they give of their faith and of their hope will get them out of any of the issues that they're in, right? Because he doesn't think that the reason for this defense is to escape suffering or to, or to acquire um, more power in the culture or to win in any significant way. Right? That's, that doesn't seem to be why he wants them to make these arguments. That doesn't be, seem to be why he wants them to make an apologia. He, uh, he wants them to give this, these reasoned arguments for their faith or why they believe what they believe uh, because he wants them to represent Christ in their culture in a real way. He doesn't want them to simply shrink away. Because he knows that the church in which he, to the churches to which he is speaking are in danger of persecution, and when when they are persecuted, what he's worried about is that they're simply going to shrink away, that they're going to go hide, that they're going to withdraw from culture, that they're going to withdraw from the Greco-Roman world in which they find themselves. And he doesn't want them to withdraw; he wants them to step into the cultural conversation, right? even if it means that they suffer, and he wants them to have substantive, intellectual even, conversations. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating what he asks this church to do. So he wants them to engage with the world that they live in, even if the world that they live in is hostile to them. And he wants them to do it with love and with grace and with gentleness even, he says. Fascinating, right? So, uh, that's the argument that he's making in, the, in this passage. That's the idea that he's trying to get across to the church. So what does this have to say to us? I think a lot, actually. I think if we're looking at it, it has a lot to say to us today. So I just, I just pulled out two things, and we'll, for the rest of our time here, we'll explore just these, uh, a couple of ideas about w the ways in which I think this can apply both to our church and, honestly, to the broader kind of Christian world, Right? other people who call themselves Christians and long to not simply retreat from, from culture, but to engage it with love and gentleness and goodness. Does this make sense? So that's what I'm going to talk about for the rest uh, of the morning. So point number one in your notes, um, the church should be, a, and this is just some takeaways from this passage. 
Um, the church should be a comfortable place for people who have questions. The church should be a place that's comfortable for people who have questions. Uh, questions about uh, the historicity of Jesus, whether he was a real person or not. People who have questions about uh, the moral standards that Christians hold. People who have questions about really any phase of life from atheist all the way through to ardent believer. The church should be a place that's safe for all of those people at all of those places. All right? And why? Why should it be that? We want uh, people who don't self-identify as Christians. Uh, so we want the skeptical and the, and the questioning to feel comfortable here. And if I'm being honest with you, this is something that I care about very deeply. Um, both because uh, I like being around people who have questions like that, I, I like engaging in these conversations, but also because of the world that we now occupy. Uh, we live in a world that is becoming less devout in terms of its uh, faith in Jesus or any faith, really, right? We live in a world that people are becoming secular at higher and higher rates. And this is not, uh, this is not unusual. This happens pretty much in every, every culture as it becomes uh, more technologically advanced and more wealthy, to be honest with you. Uh, and in that uh, world, in this culture where we live, both in Iowa and in the United States and in the Western Hemisphere as a whole, the church has this temptation to, when, that, when they see that happening, to kind of circle their wagons and get maybe like antagonistic towards a culture that doesn't look like them. But Peter's injunction to us is to be slightly different than that. It's to be open and to have heartfelt and loving, gentle, and grace-filled conversations with those who don't see eye to eye with us, right? This is what Peter's asking the church to do, and I think this is what the church ought to do. And so every church in our culture should be a church that has its arms and its mind open to people who don't see eye to eye with them, right? Because we ought to be about the business of having conversations. We ought to be about the business, right, of having a reasoned defense for the, the things that we think and believe as a church or as Christians, right? We don't want to simply um, wall ourselves off from culture. Because that's not good for the God, it's not good for the message of Jesus, and it's not good for us, right? It does weird things to our hearts when we wall ourselves off from people. But rather, when we when we open ourselves up, right? When we have uh, when we have reasons for the things we think, right? That we have that we know why we think what we think, and we uh, engage people who don't think that way with love and kindness and in friendship. What happens is that. Uh, the, we are then involved, we're invited into the cultural conversation, right? And that's, that, that can't be a bad thing. It just, it simply can't be a bad thing. It is, it is a good thing. And you know this, we, uh, we're three quarters of a mile from a university. A lot of you go there. Um, you ought to be, uh, we ought to be engaging in the cultural conversation. We ought to be, just because of our proximity here because of the fact that we have some students here and we have some people who work at the university that come to our church, we ought to be engaged in that and not in an antagonistic way, right? In a way that is open to dialogue and conversation because how else is Jesus going to find his way into these conversations? He's not. He, he really isn't, if not through our engagement in conversation with people. Does that make sense? I think it's a really important thing and it needs... Uh, it needs to be at the forefront of Christians' minds because as the culture moves more away from kind of historical Christian belief, like I said, the temptation is to, um, 
to become cloistered, to become just like a holy huddle of sorts. And what we need to do is engage in love and in grace out into our world, right? All right. So, um, so just two points under that point. I got a lot of points today. I usually don't have that many points. I got a point and I got some sub points and some more points and some bullet points under that. No. So uh, just two helpful things. Uh, one, we need to speak the language of our culture. Um, sometimes, maybe you know this, uh, sometimes in church, uh, we spend a lot of time together and we spend a lot of time reading the scriptures, which is not a bad thing particularly. But when we come together, we develop this kind of religious language, right? This religious shorthand uh, that in, in and of itself is not bad, right? We should have, we should speak the words of the Bible. They should be on, the, on our tongues in some sense. But what happens is occasionally in church is that people get so accustomed to hearing that type of language that it just becomes kind of an echo chamber. And we walk around in our daily lives using kind of churchy language, and we're completely incapable of speaking to people who don't understand uh, that type of language, right? So, um, for instance, uh, we're having some people over uh, to fellowship. You're, what? What are you, you're, well, you're having some people over to what? To fellowship. No one really outside the church understands what you mean. Uh, they, they don't understand it. It's just the reality, right? Uh, and this doesn't mean that that word is particularly bad. I happen to like the word fellowship a lot. But it just means that we need to be cognizant of the words we use out in culture and understanding that people don't always know what we're saying, right? We have to use the vernacular of our day to speak to people, right? It's, uh, it seems strange, and in so many ways we, uh, we don't realize the ways in which we use insider language um, and the ways that that insider language can keep people who are kind of outside of the inside, if that makes sense, out. Does that make sense? If so, just, just an example. Somebody walks through our doors, right? And they don't understand our language. They don't understand the kind of churchy vernacular that we use. And we start talking about, uh, we start speaking in kind of this churchy way. What, and they don't, what that makes them feel like is an outsider. Does this make sense? Because we have insider language. And we need to be cognizant of the words that come out of our mouth so that we're not making people feel like outsiders. Because we want everybody to be enveloped in the love and the goodness and the grace of God. We need everybody to feel like an insider, to be honest with you. And so Christians are people who go out of our way to, to watch the words that come out of our mouth. To make sure that we're speaking in such a way as to involve people in our lives. Does this make sense? All right. So that's number one. Number two. Uh, like Peter said... Uh, we need to engage, we need to have, uh, and we need to have reasons. We need to engage the ideas or the thought life of our culture, of, of our day. Now, I know some of you like to argue, and I know this because I'm friends with you on Facebook, right? That was supposed to get a laugh. Man, the laughs are few and far between today. That's all right. That's all right. Um, that's not what Peter meant, the Facebook arguments, just for the record. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, and he says it in this passage, that uh, they will, when someone asks you a question, right? When a person who you're face-to-face -face with asks you a question, it's good to have a reason for the hope that you have within you, right? So Peter is expecting that people in this, he's expecting this church to be engaged with relation, in relationship and in culture and in their daily lives with people who don't think like them. Wow, right? 
And he's expecting those, those conversations, those relationships, to be ones that are full of grace and love and gentleness, but are also, uh, there's also a difference of opinion, right? There's also a difference of opinion involved, and that's good. You guys, you hear the word dialogue, right? The, it's a popular word in culture. Dialogue is really important, especially with people who don't see eye to eye, right? Uh, cultures who don't see eye to eye, different uh, individuals who have different maybe political perspectives. Dialogue is really important, but you know what you need to have dialogue? You need to have one, each party has to have a mutual understanding of what the other person's argument is, right? So they need to listen with respect to what the other person has to say. But also in dialogue, you have to have an acknowledgement of there's a little bit of a gap between the two of you, right? That there is some, in some sense, there is a difference between one perspective and another perspective. And that's good because if we all thought the same, we couldn't have dialogue. We wouldn't be dialoguing about anything. We would all just be monologuing at, one each, at each other's faces. And that's no fun. Um, we, we need to have difference and we need to have respect and so that we can have conversation over the kind of boundary of that difference. And that's what dialogue is. And Christians ought to be about the business of having those types of conversations. All right? Does that make sense? So, uh, this is so important, and it's, you can probably hear it in my voice. It's really uh, central and uh, an important idea to me. I want to be a person who is engaging with people who don't think like I do. I want to be a person who is thinking about the reasons that I live the life I do. I want to be a person who is engaged with culture in a way right, that represents the, my, um, my belief in Jesus well out into culture. I care about this. Um, and the church ought to be a place that cares about this also. If we're, if we're taking Peter's words uh, seriously, the church is a place that should care about this as well. So, uh, how then, and this is the question that arises for me, how then do we uh, give a reason for our faith? When one is asked about the reason for the hope that lies within you, what's the response, right? And what's the response that we, we are to give? Now, I don't know everything that you should answer. Um, and the word apologia that we were looking at earlier, uh, it, there's been a whole kind of Christian philosophical stream that has taken that word apologia and put a... Um, uh, made up a word called apologetics, right? And there's, so it's all about philosophical arguments for the existence of God or um, different kind of conversations like that. And those, that stuff is interesting and good. And if you're into that, you can read a lot of books like that. Tim Keller's got a book called The Reason for God that's really good. There's a pastor named Greg Boyd, pastor scholar named Greg Boyd, who wrote a book called um, Letters to a Skeptic, which are just letters between he and his father about kind of these kind of issues. And those are all good and fine. But ultimately, um, I, I, like, I like philosophical argument. I like having reasons for the, for the things I think. But ultimately, I think there's a deeper, deeper level, something slightly more significant um, that we need to do uh, in this, when Peter says, we need to have a reason. We need to have a reason. And the thing uh, that I think in the, the church needs to get better at or not even get better at. The thing that I think the church needs to emphasize when we talk about the reason for our faith is, um, yes, reasonable conversation, right? 
reasonable conversation over reasonable ideas. But also, the church needs to see that its primary witness, and its primary public witness, needs to be exemplified uh, in its good deeds. Our reality as the church, our primary witness out into the world, our primary testimony to the God that we serve, ought to be exemplified in our good deeds. And Peter says this to the church, doesn't he? He says that they will see your good deeds and glorify the God that you serve. There seems to be, for Peter, some, um, even though the church is being slandered, even though the church is being persecuted in some sense, that doesn't absolve them from their responsibility to do good deeds in their culture. All right? And so, what does that look like for us? What does it look like to do good deeds in our culture? And how does that witness to the reality of God? How does that give a reason for the hope that resides within us? Um, I have a brief list of things that Christians have done down through, the history, down through history, motivated by their faith in Jesus, uh, to, that propelled them out into culture and created uh, positive change, the good things that they did out in the world. Christians for thousands of years have been compelled by their faith to do good in the world. And we, as Christians, regardless of where we stand in culture, ought to be about the business of doing these things as well. So here's a quick uh, list of the contributions to, to the, the entirety of humanity that Christians have made over the years. So uh, the church is the largest single provider of health care in the world and also the largest single provider of education in the world. That's true today, all right? The early church fathers successfully campaigned against uh, infanticide, and some church fathers stood up for the rights of women by codifying marriage as a sacrament. Now, we look at marriage as a sacrament, and we wonder why, why is that. They did it because it ensured the rights of women, that they couldn't be divorced and thrown out on the street. That's why marriage was first codified as a sacrament. Um, the first orphanages were, Christ were churches, and churches pioneered the first uh, homes for the elderly and the first homes for the disabled, right? This is something we've done. It was the evangelicals of the 19th century who led uh, society to abolish the slave trade, a guy named Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce. And those same evangelicals uh, pioneered social work, uh, a person named James Adams. Uh, uh, they pioneered modern foster care, modern nursing, and free health care for the terminally ill. This is all things that the church did to start. 100 out of 110 U.S. universities were church-founded. 100 out of 110 of the major U.S. universities were founded by the church because they, had a, they valued education, they valued learning. Um, and it was a missionary who pioneered the most uh, successful world literacy effort in history. Christians uh, were also pioneers for free schooling for the poor and uh, for people in slums and in orphanages. Uh, a minister spearheaded the campaign in the uh, 19th century to protect, ch protect children from abuse at home or in the workplace. And a Christian woman who campaigned uh, for the age of consent uh, for, to be set at 16 so that children uh, would not be abused. The Salvation Arm Army pioneered uh, radical care for the poor and the disadvantaged in society. And the Quakers campaigned for prison reform. Christians were on the forefront uh, of promoting uh, fair trade in the 20th century and were uh, and were and still are uh, the primary progenitors of the microfinance uh, movement amongst uh, the poor in the third world. 
And it was the church, and finally, here it is, it was the church who led uh, the effort for the UN to declare uh, their Declaration of Human Rights. This is all things that the church did. This is a way in which they, the church has, throughout history, witnessed to the reality of Jesus in their world. And when they were asked for a reason as to why they were doing these things, why they had such hope and worked for such transformation and change in the world, they could point to the person of Jesus. It's the good that we do, right, in the world that elicits the questions that Peter talks about in this passage. Um, all of these and more can be found. I got all of these from a blog called Christian uh, Good in Society.blogspot.com. So if you want to see like 50 others, you can. You can go look at them there. But when I think about giving a reason for the hope that lives within me, really I think about these two things. I think about giving my story, right? About telling the, diff- the, the story that, of the difference that Jesus has made in my own heart, right? I think about that. And second, I think about the, uh, the reason of the good works that Christians have done for thousands of years in the world to improve uh, the world that we live in. Because Christians have always and will continue to always work for the common good of humanity based on and flowing out of a love that they have for Jesus and a love for the world. A, a God who sacrificed his life for others. And so the church knew that they were called to sacrifice their lives for others as well. It makes sense, right? It makes sense that these would be the kind of twin poles of our answer that we have, that we give to society. And the early church did this too, right? The early church did this in a myriad of ways. But we are called to engage culture, both with our good works and with our words. We're not called to shrink away. We're not called to run away. But we are called to engage in some real and true way. If the band could come up. We are called to be a people who are, have opened our hearts, our minds, and even our sanctuary here, our church, the actual front doors of our church, to those who are skeptical, to those who have questions, to those who are on a, a trajectory of sorts towards faith, right? To those who simply want to engage with Christians to know what we think or how we think. The, the church is called to this type of posture. And I feel quite strongly... Uh, that this church can be uh, a kind of beacon of that in this community, that we can be a people who engage with culture in an honest and open dialogue, that can engage culture with the love and goodness of Jesus, that can move in ways uh, that, that emphasize the goodness and the grace of God, both in, both in the way we conduct ourselves with people and in the good that we do out in the world. Does this make sense? I think this is what Peter was calling the first century church to. The, these, uh, these churches in Turkey that he was writing to, I think he was calling them to this because he knew that they were in danger of, being, of, of shrinking away. He knew that they, there was a temptation that was before them, and that temptation that was before them was to simply run and hide. And he calls them to this higher standard because he knows that the church ought to be a presence in the world because Jesus died for the world and established and was established as the king of the world and that Jesus uh, compelled them out into culture to share that to share that message and he does the same to us today